Um, many years ago, I received a phone call, and the voice on the other end was extremely nervous. And they were fearful, and there was great trepidation in their voice, and he asked me if he could speak to me for a significant amount of time, and I obliged. And then he proceeded to tell me that he was gay. And that he's been gay, at least he know, you know, it was known that he's been gay for about the last five to seven years. And I remember, as he told me these words, I was so thankful that it was a phone call, because I doubt the posture of my body or the expression of my face was one of comfort. Because to be completely honest, I was shocked. Radically shocked. And I confess, I confess before you today with a broken heart that I handled his coming out moment extremely poorly. Extremely poorly. The thing was, is I wasn't mad, and I wasn't confused, but I wasn't at a loss for words either. And that was just the issue. See, rather than hearing him, rather than seeing him, I saw an issue to be fixed. Rather than being present with my younger brother, who needed me in that moment, I failed him. I failed him so much. I failed him as a pastor, as a friend, but more than anything, I failed my brother. I failed as a brother. And I will forever have remorse over my actions in that phone call. And as my younger brother proceeded to tell me about his sexual orientation, about his fears, and about his hopes, our conversation ultimately started to change focus. And we crossed the threshing floor into the terrain of faith and sexuality, and the Bible and homosexuality. And eventually the question was asked, Casey, brother, does the Bible prohibit same-sex behavior? And he was waiting for me, as a Christian and as a, as a church leader, he was waiting for me to either give him affirmation or alienation. Brother, Casey, will you give me affirmation or alienation? Which one in that moment would I employ upon my younger brother who just came out to me? Is it safe to assume that some tonight have come wondering the same thing? Casey, you're going to tell us affirmation or alienation. Which one, Casey? What I would hope that we would see tonight, what I would love to present, is possibly a third way. A third way. See, my mind wanders to Jesus, who intervened with a woman in the Bible who was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, as the law goes, she was good as dead. But Jesus Christ stuns the world because he doesn't alienate, but he also doesn't affirm. Jesus protects her, and he loves her, and he gives her dignity, and then he says, go and sin no more. Jesus presents a third way. See, where the church is historically led with go and sin no more, the church completely removed of empathy, of understanding, Jesus, the God-man full of grace and truth, approaches her with an understanding that transcends alienation and affirmation. Again, this is our hope tonight. So if you're here today, either Christian or unchristian, either heterosexual or homosexual, I can only imagine that some of you come with the expectations of condemning words of hell and brimstone and fire and damnation. 
that sort of Westboro Baptist garbage. I'll go as far to say that Westboro Baptist and their message is outright satanic. That is not how Christ approached the conversations of sex and desire and marriage. Homosexuality has so many layers to it, it's very sensitive. It's a very sensitive conversation, and it's extremely important. You see, the conversation of homosexuality and the Christian view is not either about truth or love, either truth or love, as we have to compromise one for the other, like Jesus, the woman you know, caught in adultery. We tenderly tonight approach this conversation seeking both truth and love, since the biblical truth of Jesus is loving and the love of Christ is truthful. This is where we desire to plant our flag as a Christian, as a Christian church who holds the Bible authoritatively. And so because of that, I would ask that you would hear what we as a small Jesus community, what I, not as a therapist, not as a biologist, not as a social scientist, but I as a pastor would have to say from the text of Scripture. I do not speak from academia. I do not speak from an elevated position, nor do I claim to have all of the answers. But I do hope that you hear me fully tonight as we open the Bible. As well... I invite any one of you to have a conversation afterwards, if you so desire. And if you're like, no, thanks for the conversation, I'll buy you a burrito this week. And if you don't desire a burrito, we shouldn't even be friends. So I hope everybody gets it, that I'm opening myself up to burrito time, okay? So I want to get back to the question. I want to get back to the question my brother asked me so many years ago, does the Bible prohibit... Homosexual behavior. Well, first, what we need to, to, to understand is, what are we talking about when we say the word homosexual? What are we talking about? See, one would be tempted to think that this means someone of a given sex being attracted to the, to the same sex. And if you compacted homosexuality, homosexuality down to, to the, the very bare bones, yes, that is true. But there are many variations to consider in trying to understand homosexuality. See, I've heard that it's been said it's better to refer to it as homosexualities. So when we talk about homosexuality, and obviously this is incredibly complex, what we have to consider are the differences between homosexual orientation, attracted to, to, to the same sex, either man or woman, and not acting out on it or acting on it, this is homosexual orientation, or homosexual identity, those who express themselves in, in, in this way, even though they may not act out on it, and then there's homosexual behavior. Those are people who live a gay and lesbian lifestyle. Now, I say all of this to foremost try and remove any prior preconceived presuppositions when it comes to the conversation of homosexuality. This critical question my brother asked me that numerous, and I'm assuming everybody in the, in the, in the room would, would love to know if they don't already know, I'm assuming that everybody wants to, to understand does the Bible prohibit same-sex relationships, to ask that already has a massive assumption attached to it. And that assumption is this. We read the Bible as a whole. See, my brother didn't ask is, does Leviticus prohibit? Does the New Testament prohibit? What my brother asked was, does the Bible prohibit same-sex relationships? Any topic 
that deals with sin or law or heaven or hell, any topic that has real, very, very real stakes to it, we can never then just cherry pick what we want from Scripture. This gets us into trouble. We have to read it as a canonical whole, meaning we have to read it from cover to cover. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture is crucial. This way we understand the Bible, the author, Jesus' trajectory and shape. So all people who are seeking holistic answers, not just Christians, all people should read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, especially when it comes to Jesus, especially when it comes to the conversation of homosexuality. So let's hear Christ's words on the topic of homosexuality. If you have one of our borrowed Bibles, it's page 568 for you. But Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. We're going to do some flipping around tonight, so just bear with me. Starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, know, uh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now how many times did you read the word homosexual or homosexuality in there? How many times did you read the word gay? The word lesbian? What are these verses even really about? Divorce. So what in the world? Did I read the wrong set of verses? Casey, you, you scoundrel. And what's that? <laughs> I remember vividly some time ago that there was this booklet on homosexuality going around where on the cover it would ask the question, what did Jesus teach about homosexuality? And then like, ooh, and you would open it up and the very first page would be blank. That was it. That was the entire booklet. The point coming across loud and clear that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, thus his followers, Christians, should shut their mouths. See, here's the thing. If you got out a magnifying glass and cruised the Gospels in the New Testament, searching for all of Christ's interactions, all of his interactions, I believe, I really believe, I tried to study this as much as possible, but I really believe there's only once, once, Jesus gives a straight to the point, definitive answer. All other interactions, Jesus reframes. All other interactions that Jesus has, he reframes them counterculturally in such a way that he brings overarching kingdom principles. Let me say it another way. King Jesus reframes the way of life in light of who he is every single time. So when the religious leaders called the Pharisees tried to challenge Jesus in his approach and his regard to divorce, expecting a simple answer, Jesus, JC, bro, yay or nay? And Jesus is like, ah, no. Let me explain something. And Jesus, again, counterculturally reframes not just divorce, but what? Love, sex, marriage, and purpose all in a single response. So the argument that Jesus never said a word about homosexuality is a true claim, but that is true only in the most technical and the most unhelpful sense. 
Because to be fair, he also never mentioned child abuse, fraud, or idolatry. And I think we all know where Jesus stands theologically on those conversations. So because of Christ's response in Matthew 19, we cannot think Jesus is neutral when it comes to homosexuality. Jesus appeals to the text of Genesis 2. Genesis 1 and 2. Thus, so should we. He situated, hear me clearly, he situates it on the created order, that giving everyone a certain a center of our sexual ecology. In other words, Jesus declares the validity of one type of sexual relationship, that being marriage. He grounds his entire countercultural answer in creation. Not in culture, not in preference, in creation. If you remember from last week, we discussed that whatever's referenced to in Genesis 1 and 2, if Paul or Peter or Jesus or whoever in the New Testament references Genesis 1 and 2, it is to be understood that that is God's divine plan for mankind and for nature. Essentially, this is how God wants it. And Jesus places an emphasis emphasis here that God wants sexual difference in relationships in the marriage context. If you notice, Jesus wells together God's creation of male and female with God's design of marriage. Jesus' statement about sexual difference, God made the male and female, is really weird unless it is a requirement for God's purpose of marriage and of sex. It's odd for him to just bring it up unless it's an understanding of a requirement. For a greater understanding of marriage or one flesh, refer back to last week's talk. What I'd hope to do parallel to my main points of tonight's talk is to show that if we were to even just remove all the five or six verses that directly speak to same-sex relationships or same-sex behavior, if we were to remove all of them from the Bible, just rip them out, we would still have enough scriptures and awareness that sex is for marriage and that marriage is between a man and a woman. Jesus in Matthew 19, Mark, tells, Mark 10, and elsewhere confirmed this. Essentially, it could be said, we believe what we believe about homosexuality because Bible authoritative Christians believe what they believe about marriage. That being marriage, you know, with God's intent. So to understand Jesus is to know that he, as an adhering rabbi, You know, he's a Jewish rabbi, and a hearing Jewish rabbi would have never, ever relaxed laws regarding sexuality. Remember that he said, I have not come to abolish the law. He didn't show up and be like, yeah, burn Leviticus 18. He goes, I'm not come to abolish any of it. I came to fulfill it. So if we read it carefully, we see that Rabbi Jesus doesn't loosen sexual ethics. If we read carefully, he actually tightens them. He tightens them. He says, bull honky divorce for, for, to divorce for stupid or lame reasons. He says, no way about just the act of adultery. If you think of somebody lustful, you've committed adultery. And everybody's like, oh, mama. It's just that he was tightening all of them. Jesus is all over the protective prohibitions regarding sex and regarding marriage. Because their design matters. 
I told my wife, I was probably going to rant at this moment. Here it comes. <laughs> Let me just say how offensive and how corrosive it is when people say that the prohibitions do not matter anymore. To the Christians who are attracted to the same sex, for them to hear church after church and friend after friend surrender to cultural pressures or loosen their theological convictions, that does not help them. That hurts them. That hurts them. Because what they're trying to do is abstain and try to win this battle. They're making a choice. And every time someone's like, it's fine, whatever. They feel like this was for nothing then. Jesus elevates the protective prohibitions regarding sex and marriage because the marriage design is significant within Genesis 1 and 2. The primary significance is that the marriage relationship is a means which the glory of the Creator is fully, fully seen. A twisting of that portrays something false about Christ and his relationship to his people, the church, also called the bride. Hear me clearly. So to deny that creation and that purpose, according to Scripture, is a denial of God himself. Let me make that point. Everybody turn to Romans chapter 1. It's a few books to your right. Pass Acts. We all, we all know Acts, don't we? We're all sick of it. I know. Four more years in Acts. We'll get there. We'll get there. Coming for you. I don't know the last time I had you guys turn somewhere in the middle of a talk. It feels so... Mm. <laughs> so the question of what happens if we change, leave, or remove the created order? Maybe the question is, okay, Casey, so what? What happens then with God and the gay man or the lesbian woman? Well, it just so happens that the New Testament shows us. Actually, the New Testament gives us a map. It's a map that has traced out what has transpired within all of humanity since Genesis chapter 3. What happens to this world and all those who inhabit it after, after the existence of sin? Romans 1 is that map. Let's read it together. But before we do, know that these are the, um, the most highly debated words in all of the Bible regarding homosexuality. One author calls these sets of verses the storm center. So that'll be fun. We're going to walk right into the eye of the storm. So verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, and this is Genesis chapter 3 on, this road map, or this map that's traced all of this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they what? They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So according to Paul, humanity has done an exchange. Okay, verse 24, therefore, and allow these words to break your heart, therefore God gave them up. 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. The thing that humanity exchanged was the, cre- was the, was the creator. Thus, all of his designs and his, his intentions have been exchanged. My son and I right now are... Um, we're reading Animal Farm. I don't know if you guys, I'm obsessed with Animal Farm. It's one of my favorite books of all time. But I'm reading Animal Farm to him, and I know it's about communism or whatever, but it's awesome. So we're reading Animal Farm at night, and, and the animals drive out the farmer. If you remember from high school, the animals drive out the farmer, Mr. Jones, and replace all of his ways, all of his orders for new ones. And they, they paint these on the broad side of the barn. Essentially, what once was is no more. That's what Paul is saying has happened with the creatures, us, and the creator, God. Thus, all of the created order, marriage, power, stewardship, ambition, work, and yes, sex, or sexual relationships, is now considered to be under new management. It's under new management. See, Romans 1 is showing us that all of humanity, all of humanity, All of humanity is guilty and appointed to wrath. All of humanity, heterosexual or homosexual, gay or straight. The creator has been swapped out and we, the creatures, took his role. We, the creatures, took his role. The farmer has left and the swine move into the house. Friends, this is the center of all sin. This is the center of all sin. So when I say the word tonight, sin, I'm referring to the very soul, the very capital of every rebellious action, that being our rebellious decision to cast God aside, to exchange God. I'm going to take God, I'm going to exchange it for this, this, and this. And when one removes, hear me so clearly, when one removes the starting point or our reference point, we then and it doesn't matter if you're gay or straight, but we then decide where to set the reference point, right? That making all of us self-defining creatures, identifying as whatever we want. I am whatever I want to be because I said so. I am straight because I said so. I am gay because I said so. I am a woman because I said so. I'm reminded of what theologian Bruce Waltke says about this. He says, um, God created humanity, and therefore only God can reveal to us our identity and function. Genesis 1 and 2. Without this biblical revelation, we are lost in a maze of confusion. Romans 1 says, you and I have a starting point. Jesus and Paul say, no, 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 you have a starting point. It's in Genesis. They affirm this. What Romans also shows us is that this maze of confusion is for everybody. All of us sexually distorted. Every single one of us broken in our sexuality. Listen up, Christians. For us to think that just the LGBTQ plus community is sexually broken, just to think that they are is a profound misread of the Bible. 
Those are Christians. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again. To dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Those particular words right there showing us that this passion was mutual. This passion was mutual. Putting away the debate that this was with men, with teenage boys, or prostitution, or pedophilia. Mutual passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I am not so removed from this topic or from this conversation to not to, to just be blinded to the fact that these are extremely heavy, heavy words. Nobody wants my job tonight, right? These are heavy words. But notice, we have to do a little bit of work here. I just want to just burn through those words. I want to, we have to sit in them. To not be ashamed of the gospel is not to be ashamed of any of it. So we have to sit in these and talk about what these really mean. So I want us to notice how Paul has been saying that man now glorifies self, the man worships himself, and man worships images of fellow creatures rather than the creator. Now, many commentators and scholars would teach, whether you agree with this or not, that there are certain individuals who choose to have sexual relationships with images of themselves. Man with man, woman with woman. But for Paul, the true illustration is true for all of us. All of us, either straight or gay. Paul's saying we're all idolaters. We're all worshiping ourselves as the new creator. Homosexuality is just an instance of this total reality. He doesn't only mention homosexuality. Paul mentions many more symptoms of God giving man over to anything we choose. I want us to be so horrified by these words that God gave them up. We should be horrified by them. Who's got to be the scariest words in all of the Bible? And we hear it three times in a row. God's worst judgment on man or woman is to give us over to our desires. That is God's absolute worst judgment. Because our ultimate, innate, intrinsic, natural desire is to be our own self-righteous, worshipped God. And to be our own gods means we abandon the God. This, my friends, is our natural proclivity from birth, from conception. Texas pastor Matt Chandler, he says this. Each of us is born with genuine, innate impulses which fringe upon God's will. If the reality of a desire is the basis of right and wrong, then sin has no meaning whatsoever. The gospel calls us to continually not to look and act upon our nature in Adam. That is the nature with which we, we each born one tainted with sin but rather to be clothed with a new nature which is being renewed in the image of Christ. Even if one were born with an orientation towards homosexual desire, such a proclivity would not evidence the, the legitimacy of that desire. Sin has radically affected every aspect of our lives and permeates all our, of our desires and affections, and we are daily called to repent and trust Christ for strength. A chunky quote, I know. Essentially, 
What comes natural to everyone is the inward bent. And for what it's worth, Justin Lee, who upholds a gay affirming theological position, says this about our natural inclination. So he's he's pro-gay theology. So this is what he says, though. Just because an attraction or drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act upon act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of ways. If gay people's same-sex attractions were inborn, natural, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it a sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. Now, for God to give anyone, for God to, to, to give up on anyone, doesn't mean God quits on people, gay or straight, any more than he gives up or he gave over to the people who were greedy or deceitful, as, we read, or as we're going to read, malicious, slanderous, insolent, arrogant, boastful, and so on. I want everybody right now in this moment to see that Romans 1 shows us that God is utterly refused by us and an entire society as we worshiped one another. An entire society refuses him as we worshiped another. Prolific author and bishop N.T. Wright says this, another chunky quote, bear with me, but this is heavy stuff. He goes, homosexual behavior is a distortion of the creator's design and that such practices are evidence, not of the intention of any specific individual to indulge in these practices for its own sake. Here's the important part but of the tendency within an entire society for humanists to fracture when God's, um, fracture when God's other than the one true, excuse me, true one, are being worshipped. Let me, let me flesh that out. This helps us to see. N.T. Wright is helping us to see what Paul is saying, that all of humanity's, humanity's distortion is proof. All of humanity's distortion is proof that we are no longer identify or we no longer relate as we once did in Genesis 1, and two. And this includes not just same-sex attraction, not just same-sex sins. Paul illustrates that this is something far bigger. Look down at verse 28 in your Bibles. Paul is illustrating that this is far bigger than just homosexuality. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are, fill, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, uh, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Some of this list I know Paul just rattled off. I've done like probably 10 of those today. See, if you're here and not a Christian, or if you're here and have affirming theology, if you're here and you identify as, as gay or lesbian, I don't know if you're steaming with anger, if I've pissed you off. I don't know. I know with such words from a pulpit, I know with such words from the Bible, there comes great peril. But if you please hear me, from the very same Bible can also come 
great promise. What I do not want anybody in this room to hear is chubby Casey Fritch preaching the gospel of heterosexuality. That is not what I am preaching. To try and convince everyone here that if you become a Christian, that all of a sudden, <coughs> excuse me, that all of a sudden you're attracted to the opposite sex. Or that choosing Jesus all of a sudden makes your life easy. And we just walk around eating granola and wearing Birkenstocks. Man, it's great being a Christian. Back massage. Like, that's, that's not what it is. Nor am I saying that you must be attracted to the other sex in order to become a Christian. The brilliant professor Michael Horton says this, There is no reason to think that Christians who struggle with these attractions are any less justified and renewed by God's grace. Pause for applaud, and nobody did it. That's all right. That's all right. We'll move on. In Christ, then there are those who wrestle especially with greed or anger or gossip. The gospel frees us to confess our sins without fear of condemnation, looking to Christ alone for our justification and holiness. We can finally declare war on our indwelling sin because we have peace with God. Here's what I'm building towards. Romans 1 is this case that we're all damned. All of us, without choosing Jesus. But then, and it's beautiful, Paul keeps writing. Uh, he probably wasn't typing. Paul keeps writing. <laughs> and he gets to chapter 3. And like a master writer, Paul narrates a life-giving portrait of the work of Christ, this known as the gospel. I want to read you a verse from chapter 3. It should be on the screens. Paul saying this. Remember, he's just building this entire roadmap. Everybody's damned. Chapter 3. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did he say only gay people have sinned? No, no. All. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Simply, everything, everything sinful that we have done outside of Genesis 1 and 2, everything and anything, from watching porn to starring in porn, from murder to moralism, from violence to vengeance, from hate to harm, everything, you or I have done the darkest things you can possibly imagine, the darkest things you could possibly think of. Christ takes all of that. See, Christ can do an exchange as well. And Christ takes all of that and he packs it ever so neatly in a coffin. He sets that coffin on fire. He throws it in the ocean. Then he shoots it a million times with a machine gun and he puts him to death forever. Let me read verse 24 again. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I hope that we're starting to see that this isn't a talk about them. This is a talk about us. This is hopefully where we realize the cost of following Jesus. The cost of being a Christian will cost us everything. Even our identity. The cost of being a Christian will cost us even our preferences even our desires, even our loves. Jesus calls everyone to give up the very sense of who they are. Not because Christ is evil. Why are you taking these things from me? Not because Christ is evil, but because he knows that anything that steals us away from the Father 
is a thief and an empty promise. If anyone here has declared to believe the gospel and has not had to shun, deny, surrender, and abandon lesser glories, misplaced identities, or any any, uh, plethora of sexual desires or orientations, then I don't know what gospel you've believed in. My younger brother, who I told you about, um, somewhat recently, he lived with us for about three or four months. And um, every day, every day, we talked about Jesus and homosexuality. I mean, it was a conversation every day. And I tell you what, I am proud of my brother, proud of him, because he knew the cost. Most professing Christians don't even know the cost, but my, my, my homosexual brother, identifying as gay, knew the cost. And he knew what the cost was so clearly and what it demanded of people. But he knew it so clearly that he would often say, the cost is too great. Thus, he, he would reject it. And he refused the Creator and he exchanged the temporal for the eternal. When we are outside having a beer, talking for hours, and just being brothers, he would often look at me and go, Casey, I get it. He didn't push back. If he had the Bible open in front of him, he goes, I get it. But he would go, every time he would say, I get it, but I want the white picket fence. He goes, I get it, but I want the all-American family with a husband. And he goes, I would rather have that now. And he goes, I'll deal with eternity later. What I believe my brother couldn't receive is this, though. That the power of the gospel is, yes, something we leave behind, but we are never left alone. I don't know if you know that or you believe that. What my brother couldn't grasp is there is no bad deals with Jesus. If Jesus' costs are great, his rewards are greater. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Perhaps have you rejected these biblical truths regarding sexuality? Professor Horton again says, refusing to agree with God, this is my brother, refusing to agree with God about the nature of such behavior as sinful, those who embrace sexual morality as a lifestyle reject the gospel. One cannot even seek forgiveness for something that one does not regard as sinful in the first place. The gospel calls every man and woman to own the exchange. Jesus is like, you've got to own it. And from there, the Bible would say, repent. Now, please do not freak out when you hear the word repent. Probably one of the most hated words in all of the English language. Repentance just means a change of mind. It does not mean that you never again struggle with that sin. Actually, quite the contrary. The struggle or the battle indicates repentance. It isn't a battle. It isn't a struggle if there is no repentance. It means that someone decisively has set his or her face against the former exchange. 
that Christians and all those in the church, in order to turn to Christ, must turn from something. And the church has much to repent over within the realm of homosexuality. Wouldn't you agree? The church has blood on its hands. I'm just going to put this out there. The church, Christianity, has to repent over, in the homosexual community, repent over its lack of compassion. The church needs to repent over its lack of engagement when anybody in the LGBTQ plus community has been abused, discriminated against, ostracized, or faced any form of injustice. The Bible says we come near to those who are marginalized no matter who they are or what they believe. The church needs to repent over its exaggeration of this particular sin. The church needs to repent over the miscommunication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church needs to repent over making marriage and sex the quintessential form of happiness. That is obscene. If we think that marriage is the solution to singleness, if we think that heterosexual marriage is the solution to homosexuality, then again, we have missed the point entirely. To think that marriage is the solution to even loneliness, depression, or hardship, well then first I'd wager that you're not married. If you believe that, you're not married. If you, you want to know what's really heavy to think about? If you think lying in a bed by yourself is lonely, there can be an even deeper level of depression for those who lie in bed with somebody and feel alone. That's real. Marriage is not the solution. If it was, divorce wouldn't be a thing. Sex, the act of sex is not the solution to our wholeness or to our fulfillment. What makes a person whole, fulfilled, or satisfied is the unconditional love, assurance, grace, new life, eternal purpose, and chief joy poured out in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the role of the church, it's the role of the church, us, to make that a reality. Which makes all of this the more horrifying that the church is known for, especially to the gay community, what the church is known for is hypocrisy and judgment. God forgive us. Known for hypocrisy or judgment more than acceptance. There's a study done in San Francisco in like 2014, I believe, and they asked the gay community, what do you want? What do you want most? It wasn't sex. It's a bad understanding of homosexuality. It wasn't sex. It was acceptance and it was belonging. Church, this is our place in the world to give every man and every woman a place of acceptance and belonging. Now hear me, Christians, Christians in the room, never in the history of Christendom or Christianity has sacrificial agape gospel love meant that in order to, to, to love somebody, we must approve of their behavior and desires, ever. Despite what our 2017 secular culture may say, equating love with unconditional affirmation or behavior is not part of our Christian worldview. But that should be a wake-up call. That should be a wake-up call. If our concern then is loving and serving the gay community might condone their behavior, if we're freaked out by that, we probably don't understand the type of love that Christ has called the church to do and be. 
I know this all too vividly. My brother, within the last few months, has decided to disband our relationship due to the lack of affirmation for his lifestyle from me or my wife. And he equated a lack of affirmation with a lack of love. After he lived in my home, tried to give him anything he wanted, it wrecked me. The church is called to unconditional love and even acceptance, which I do believe reflects the love of Christ. The church has a responsibility, not just Lorenzo and I. The church has a responsibility. The collective church. See what I did there? The collective church. We are responsible to become family to those who have none. Those who abandon one relationship need to discover another relationship in the church. We have a responsibility in the church to model that type of cost, that the type of cost is infinitely greater than anything else, that the cost of following Jesus is infinitely greater than any sexual desire, than any earthly relationship, than any temporary gain. Amen? Tonight, whatever you're struggling with, remember these words as we go into a time of response. I'm going to read them to you. It should be on the screen again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, <coughs> excuse me, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Are any of us, are any of you right now in the time and in need of help? Draw near to the throne of grace. Come and worship tonight. Here on the carpet, stand, lift your arms. Come and sing a song to show that he is the Savior, he is the creator, and I am the creature. Is anybody in need of help tonight? You need Jesus to intervene. Will you let us pray for you? Will you allow the church to be the church? And there's going to be people on that back wall and people on that back wall wearing lanyards who want to pray over you. For any little instance, let's allow the church to be the church and go to one another. Are you in need of help tonight? The Bible says, hold fast to your confession. Christians, hold fast to your confession, Christians. Your confession is that Christ is my all in all. Not him, not her. Christ is my all in all. And we do this as a church by receiving and partaking of communion every single week together. This is a sacred, special, beautiful act of holding fast to the confession. When we walk up here, it's as we're saying, I'm holding fast to the confession. I'm holding fast to the confession. It's a confession that I accept him as Lord of my life, of every area, of my sexual orientation, of my sexual desires, of my sexual brokenness. Christ is Lord. And when I take this cup, that is pronouncing that to not only my community, but to the world. Allow these elements, the bread and the cup and the double stack cup, to be a moment of repentance, that you turn from sin, and that you give your all to Jesus because he is worth it. Let's pray.